pray with me? More time before the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask now that your words would be unfolded and we, we remember your promise in Psalm 119, verse 130, that the unfolding of your words gives light and it imparts understanding to the simple. And we confess, Lord, that we are simple-minded to heavenly truths. We lack understanding of how great you are, of how truthful your truth is and what it can do for our lives. We pray now that you would give light. You would illuminate things. You would teach us. You would warm us up by your light. And that you would show us the light of the gospel. You would show us Jesus Christ. You would fill us up with the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm not sure about you when you read a newspaper or you scroll through your phone and you're seeing news articles. I don't know what kind of articles catch your attention. But the kind that catch my attention are the ones when there's a news headline and I have no way to comprehend what it means, how it came about. So here's what happened to me this week. New York Times, news headline, online article. Self-driving Uber car kills pedestrian in Arizona. Self-driving Uber car kills pedestrian in Arizona. This was in March of last year. Maybe some of you have have heard of it. March of 2018. A headline like that demands an explanation. It intrigues us. It captivates us. What, What is this? From this article, we read this, quote, With its dry weather and wide roads, it was considered an ideal place to test autonomous vehicles. Most testing of driverless cars occurs with a safety driver in the front seat who is available to take over if something goes wrong. But the author says it can be challenging, however, to take control of a fast-moving vehicle. So this autonomous car operated by Uber with this emergency backup driver behind the wheel, struck and killed a woman on the street in Tempe, Arizona. The Uber car, which was a Volvo XC90 sport utility vehicle, if you're curious, it was outfitted with the company's sensing system. It was in autonomous mode. And again, let me remind you, there was a human safety driver behind the wheel ready to take over if something goes wrong. The vehicle was carrying no other passengers, when it struck Elaine Herzberg, a 49-year-old woman, on a Sunday around 10 p.m. When they investigated the scene, Sergeant Ronald Elcock, a Tempe police spokesman, said during a news conference, he said, the vehicle was moving around 40 miles per hour when it struck Miss Herzberg. She was walking with her bicycle on the street. He said it did not appear as though the car had slowed down before impact, and that the Uber safety driver had shown no signs of impairment. The weather was clear and dry. It was believed to be the first pedestrian death associated with self-driving technology. So who's at fault for that accident? We, we might disagree 
about why it happened and who's to blame, we might blame the lady herself, the pedestrian. She's walking, it's 10 o'clock at night with a bicycle, walking across the street. We might blame Uber for doing these tests. We might blame the tech company who designed the technology to make this car operate. Or we might even blame that human safety driver behind the wheel. We could debate about that. But there's one thing that's not really up for debate. It's a lot less debatable. And here's that one thing. There is inherent danger to all autonomy that operates with flawed vision. There's inherent danger to any autonomy that operates with flawed vision. In a situation like this, we're left asking questions like, what, what went wrong? Who's to blame? How could this even happen? And you know what happens when we come to the book of Judges? We ask the same questions. What went wrong? How could this happen? Who's to blame? You may or may not be familiar with the book of Judges. I hope this morning you become familiar with it. Um, It's a book filled, filled to the brim with dangerous autonomy. An unresponsive type of autonomy to God's commands, content with its own self-guidance, God's people. A flawed vision, setting aside a wiser creator's plans in the passenger seat with that flawed self-guidance taking the wheel. Flawed vision. This is what God's people are doing in the book of Judges. And the autonomy slowly but deadly turns into this apostasy. It's turning away from the Lord. And even more than apostasy, this anarchy. It's all disorder and chaos by the end. Let me show you. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn on your phone or grab a Bible under the seat in front of you. Uh, Let's go to the book of Judges. It's found on page 200 if you're using one of the Bibles under the seats in front of you. Page 200. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one from our church and have it as a gift. You will need to be looking at a Bible this morning. If you're not used to doing that for sermons, you're going to need it for this one because we're going to be jumping around a lot in this book. Uh, This sermon, in some ways, is an introduction to the book as well as diving into the first three chapters. But you need to be looking at God's Word. Are you there? Okay. So let's do a quick overview. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to stop after verse 1. And then we're going to go to the very end of the book, the very last verse of the entire book. And then we're going to skip around on a few verses in between, okay? So be ready to turn around. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Okay. Those words there, after the death of Joshua, this is orienting us to when the book takes place. So it's it's after the Mosaic leaders have died. Moses, Moses' brother Aaron, who led the priest, and even Joshua, his assistant, they've died, as it says in verse 1. This book takes place after the death of Joshua. And if you remember, God created the world. Then he created a people for himself. He called Abraham. 
and he gave him promises, and he gave him a land and blessing and descendants. And Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had these 12 sons. And the people of Israel flourished, and they grew. But they were enslaved in captivity in Egypt. And in a stunning display, God brings them out of of that moment called the Exodus. Ten plagues, dramatic, he parts the sea. And the people go out in the wilderness, they're given the law, and they're about to go into this promised land, which is where this book, Judges, takes place. They send out 12 spies, one from each tribe. Only two of the spies report back that we can do this, we can take the land. Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 spies, they say, no, the people are too big, the place is too fortified, we can't do it. And in judgment, God tells the people, because you've disbelieved me, ten votes against two, so they got outvoted, those, those spies, they wander in the desert for 40 years till that generation dies. But then their children, whom they said would be a prey, those children enter the promised land. That's Joshua's day. And here, we're, we're at the generation right after Joshua. We're not yet to the monarchy and King David. So this... This book of Judges occurs between Mosaic leaders and the monarchy. It's right in between that. That's how you can remember it. It spans roughly three centuries. And the previous book, the book of Joshua, ended, or started, excuse me, started the same way Judges does. You don't have to turn there. But the book of Joshua started with the death of a Mosaic leader, Moses himself. And then it goes glorious. The people enter the land They're strong. They're courageous. Joshua was all about entering the land, conquering the land, dividing up the land, dwelling in the land. So you would expect when we come to a book like Judges, things are going to get even better. They're in the land already. Everything God has promised was hinging on them being in the land. So what glorious things is God going to do? Well, sadly, they're in the land after the death of Joshua, the people. But let's see what happens. If if we turn to the last verse of the book, go ahead and turn there. We can just fast forward for a second. Let's, Let's see how it all plays out. Very last verse, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. The final words of this book, 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not doing what's right in God's eyes, his sight, his vision. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The word for that is anarchy. Society falls apart if everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Because we all have a different judgment of what's right, what's wrong. We may have some similarities, some overlap, but if everyone does what is right in their own eyes, marriages fall apart. Families unravel. Churches won't be thriving. State, local, national governments will fall apart. Everything unravels. 
That's where the book of Judges ends. But wait a minute. It started just like the book of Joshua, the death of a Mosaic leader. Isn't, isn't it going to go well? What, what happened? How did they get to this point? That's what I want to show you this morning. And before we look at chapters 1 through 3, take note of the common refrain throughout the book of Judges. So flip, flip back with me to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Everyone's doing right in their own eyes. That's the problem. That's the theme of the book. This selfish human sight is governing lives rather than the sight of God's Word. It's a pathway of perverse autonomy. It's dark. It leads to disorder, damage, confusion. Chaos ensues. This book is strange and bizarre. There's odd patterns of disobedience. Moral decay, there's gruesome behavior in this book. There's an erosion of purity and faithfulness. There's disarray. It's a willful apostasy and anarchy. These pages are raw and earthy and gritty. They put a spotlight on blemishes. This book might even seem disgusting if you read through it as deterioration unfolds. It's not some secret interpretation, though. It's not really that hard to come up with that. You just have to look for yourself. I want to show you this. Look at chapter 2, verse 11, where you are. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now look at chapter 3, verse 7. Turn up just a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now go down five verses. Chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now in case you're reading this and you're not getting it, the author doesn't let you forget. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Wait, is this just how the book starts? Does it happen in the middle and the end? Let me show you. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'm not trying to belittle you or or say that you're ignorant. It's that God intended for us to see this phrase over and over and over again. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you don't have to turn there, but we could go on to chapter 10, verse 6. We could go to chapter 13, verse 1 over and over again. It's so clear. Here's what's happening. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The author of this book is unknown, but his message is really clear. The point he's driving home is progressive deterioration, a downward spiral of sin. This spiral of sin is going to be explained in the passage we're going to consider especially in chapter 2. But the whole thing goes from bad to worse. They sink lower and lower in the book. The consequences of sin, is, it's seeping out all over the pages. But, sometimes a dark backdrop can be useful, can it? I remember when I was looking uh, for an engagement ring for my wife, Kelsey. 
all the, the beautiful rings, you know this. What color is the background? It's some kind of dark, velvety black or dark purple, violet, or deep blue, isn't it? Why? Because it serves to highlight the brilliance of the rings. When you shine a light on them, the light's just absorbed into that darkness, and it causes your eye to see that ring pop. That's what's happening in the book of Judges. So with all this sin, all this anarchy, all this chaos, God is still working. Human sin can't prevent the glory of his salvation through judgment. He's orchestrating something here. So we need the book of Judges. We need it. Just like a jeweler needs that dark background to display their their beautiful rings. We need this book. But many of us haven't read the book of Judges. It's kind of hard when you come to it in your devotional reading and you read about some of the strange, gruesome stuff and you think, how's that going to help me live life today? I like how one commentator put it, Dale Davis, he's a pastor. He said the church in general has a problem with the book of Judges. It's so earthy, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent. In a word, so strange that the church can scarcely stomach it. But my prayer for you this morning is that you will stomach it. You'll take in this book. You'll feed off of it. It'll re-script your hearts, the way you live, what you believe about God, what you believe about sin. And I pray that seeing what unfolds here would awaken you afresh to how God saves, to how merciful He is, how gracious He is. The opening chapters of Judges are crucial. They don't just set the stage for the book and then we move on to other things. They explain the whole book, these first three chapters. They offer insights and lessons that ripple through not just this book, but the rest of the Old Testament. There's insights here that even explain the workings of the cross. So I'd invite you to look with me at these first three chapters. Uh, Look again at chapter 1. We're going to begin. If you're a note taker, or you like to know where a sermon's headed and where it's going and frame your thinking, there's going to be three questions that we're going to place on top of the the passage here, these first three chapters. Three questions to learn from. Question number one, what went wrong? What went wrong? This is chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter two, verse five. What is it that went wrong? Second question, why did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? This is Chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. Why did it go wrong? And then third question, is there any hope? Is there any hope? So that first question, what went wrong? When did things manifest and start to fall apart? Uh, Let's look. Read with me um, silently. I'll read out loud, but read with me Judges 1, 1 through 7. First seven verses. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. 
and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. It's a strange way to start a book, isn't it? Thumbs and toes cut off. It might seem weird on the surface or strange, but cutting off thumbs and big toes would strip somebody of the ability to ever go to war again. They're not going to be able to run around and and swing weapons around. It debilitates them. It would even humiliate them. It would strip them of a military threat. This pagan ruler here, Adonai Bezek, he's aware, as all the pagan nations are, that it's not just Israel judging him, it's God. Did you see what he said there? As I have done, at the end of verse 7, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So God is giving them the land, but God is simultaneously judging the nations. You could pick either side of the coin that you want to look at. God's fulfilling his promise to Israel, giving them a land, but at the same time, judging nations. And this opening episode, these first seven verses, foreshadow so many things in this book. They foreshadow God's retributive justice. They foreshadow Israel not making a full end of their enemies. They didn't kill this guy when they, when they had him, when they captured him. They cut off his thumbs. They humiliated him. And they made him like a dog to eat scraps under a table. So even here we see this little foreshadowing that rather than completely drive out and put an end to enemies, Israel was okay to have them close in a weakened state seemingly under their control. There's so much here. If we were to quickly read over chapter 1, it would seem like everything is going fine. Verses 8 through 10, we see more military victory. Verses 11 through 15 there in chapter 1, it doesn't seem like anything's going wrong. We see victory in battle. We see a wedding we see a wise bride. We see the land. We, we hear of water and good land. Everything seems nice, a rosy picture. Nothing seems to be going wrong. Judah seems to be conquering and doing just fine. But before the curtain closes on Judah and we hear about other tribes, notice with me, put your eyes on verse 19. This is the last thing said about the tribe of Judah. It says, The Lord was with Judah. He took possession of the hill country. Okay, so far so good. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Isn't it demoralizing when a team seems to be going undefeated and they lose the final game of the year? Sports fans know that. That's what happens here. 
Everything seems to be going fine for Judah, and they can't drive out their enemy because they're superior to them. They have better weaponry. But even at this point, as you're reading through Judges, things don't seem to be going that bad. But here's where everything gets clicked into sharper focus. Look with me at verse 21. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Drop down to verse 22. The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, and they let the man and his family go. That sounds nice. Here's the result, verse 26. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. In the book of Joshua, there were spies who spied out a city, and Rahab helped them out, and she became an Israelite. Here we see a similar story. They're coming. They're helped with spies. The one who helps them doesn't become an Israelite. That man and his family go off, and they rebuild the city. So did they conquer this city, or did it just get relocated to another place? What is happening that somebody wouldn't be so compelled by Israel and their God to want to be an Israelite like in the book of Joshua? But here in Judges, it doesn't happen. So this is another foreshadowing. Something is is going wrong. Look again with me in a few more verses in chapter 1. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. Drop down with me to verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. They didn't even allow them to come down to the plain. So if we ask the question, what went wrong? We were just told what went wrong. The people failed to drive out the nations. They compromised. If you want a summary verse for all of chapter 1, it's right there in verse 28 that we read. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, in other words, they have no excuse, they grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but didn't drive them out completely. So that's the issue. There's no excuse, they didn't drive them out, they compromised, they put them to work as as slaves. Israel's fully responsible for this choice here. They were strong. They stopped short of God's command, it seemed small in their eyes. They rationalized their sin. We're not told the reasons why, but they have their reasons. Sin always has its reasons. Sometimes it doesn't even look like sin. It just looks like a better plan than what God has for us. 
I like how one commentator put it. He said, to let these people remain in the land and not drive them out. It's not so much a military threat anymore, true, but it's like a spiritual cancer that you let linger in a body. Like a surgeon who removes only part of the cancer because even cancer has a right to grow and find fulfillment. Isn't this genocide, though? Aren't these people innocent? I mean, you can't really say anything went wrong because they were actually doing right, weren't they, by not killing these people? Brief moment, brief aside from the sermon. Why is it okay for God's people to wipe out entire groups of other people? Have you ever wondered that? Four reasons, super fast. Number one, God commanded it. It was part of the covenant promise. It wasn't just their own idea. It was God's command. Number two, God was patient. Back in Genesis 15.6, he talked about the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's patient. He's a just God, but he's a patient God. Number three, these people are utterly wicked. They're not innocent. They practice abominations. Sexual perversion and bestiality and incest. Second, child sacrifice. A third abomination they would commit is cultic worship of idols. The fourth thing they would do, they would eat animal blood in their sacrifices and rituals. Another reason, fifthly, they, they sought mediums and necromancers. These people were wicked in every way. They weren't just innocent. Another reason, though, would be that these nations had no excuse. That's the fourth reason. So, it was commanded by God. God was patient. They were utterly wicked, and they had no excuse, these nations. All these nations had already heard about what God had done in the Exodus. So by them staying in the land and dwelling there, they were basically calling God out, trying to call his bluff. You don't really have the cards you say you do. It was wicked for these nations to stay there. Rahab, even Ruth, after this book, they're living proof of this. Everyone had heard about God and what he was doing and his agenda. So we shouldn't see this warfare and this driving out of the people as an optional thing. Well, yeah, it kind of went wrong when they didn't do it. No, it was wrong for them not to drive them out because God commanded it. It was God's judgment on the wickedness. So practically, they didn't drive them out. But theologically, God has something to say clearly about them not driving them out. Look with me at chapter 2. Chapter 2, 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord their God. God makes it clear. You didn't obey my voice. But we put them to forced labor. They're no longer a military threat. You didn't obey my voice. 
the angel of the Lord there, this is God's authoritative messenger, somewhat of a mediator, a representative of God, speaking with divine authority. Back in Exodus chapter 3, when the, when the burning bush moment occurred with Moses, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared, that burning bush. Elsewhere in Exodus, it talks about God's going to send this angel before them, that they're to listen to this angel because he says, as in Exodus 23, 21, my name is in him. Who is this angel of the Lord? It's one to be heeded and listened to. Speaks with divine authority. And look at the message he says there again, the second half of verse 2. You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? That reminds us of Genesis When God confronts Adam and Eve, he confronts Adam, he says, oh, the woman gave me the fruit. When he confronts Eve, he actually says to Eve, what is this you have done? She blames the serpent. We don't have the reasons of how the blame shifted here, who Israel would have blamed. But they rationalized their sin. Maybe they thought, it'll be better to, to kill these people and drive them out later. Let's let them first build some things, some farms, some buildings and structures that we need. Let's let them make tools for us. Let's let them do the work. It's like their autonomy took over in the driver's seat. That check engine light is on, but they're not concerned with that little light on the conscience of their dashboard. They're just looking ahead to what they can get. So what went wrong? They disobeyed. They didn't obey God's voice. But you know what else went wrong? They did not repent. So even their response is wrong. Look at verse 4 again. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. That's a good response. They're weeping. But what comes of it? Verse 5. They called the name of that place Bochim, which means a place of weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Nothing is said that they repented of their sin. That they then drove the people out. They just had an emotional moment. Named the place after how emotional it was. Sprinkled in some religious rituals and went right back to what they were doing. An immature Christian might believe that tearfulness and emotional responses are the sign of authenticity and change. But a mature Christian understands that tears, even tears coupled with increased religious rituals here, don't clean up a person. There's a difference in worldly grief and godly grief. Look at the fruit. These people didn't repent. I like how Thomas Watson said it. He lived in the 17th century, Puritan pastor. He said, real repentance, you know what it includes? Sight for sin. Sorrow for sin, shame for sin, confession of sin, turning from sin, hatred of sin. It's not happening here. These tears might have been because of the consequences of their sin, but not the sin itself. So this verse isn't teaching us that we should dry our tears and avoid emotions. Some of you would do well to weep over your sin. But it's teaching us that it's It's more than that. It's good to be moved by tears, but better to be brought to repentance. Is God calling you to repentance in some area of your life? 
Are you being repentant or just feeling bad about it? Beware, God's people justified their sin here. It was more convenient not to drive them out. They saw sin as just having small consequences that could be managed. We do the same when we think, ah, it's not that bad. They disobeyed. So what went wrong? They disobeyed. They didn't drive them out. They didn't obey God's voice. But why? Why would they do this? We're told here, chapter 2, verses 6 through 21, we're given this beautiful why, this explanation. I'm reminded of just a few weeks ago when I was at downtown, the Bob Bullock, Texas State Museum. Wonderful place. I was there with my family. I saw a bunch of families coming in, and they were all kind of confused about where they should go and which things they should read and learn about and how to divide up their time. And We were completely at ease. Everything was explained to us we had a tour guide. We had Pam and Weston Reese, members of this church, with us. And they were explaining things, and they were pointing out, here's what's happening next, and here's what this means. We were so well taken care of. That's what this chapter does in the whole book of Judges. It explains. It takes care of you. It leaves you with an explanation to what's happening here. Here's the explanation. Look at chapter 2. Verse 10. Here's why it went wrong. There arose another generation. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. That's the reason. The reason they didn't obey God's voice is because they didn't know God. They had heard things about him. They had heard facts about him and things that he could do or would do. But they didn't know God. So knowing about the Lord can't substitute for truly knowing him. This generation of Israelites had godly, faithful parents. Parents who obeyed Deuteronomy 6.4 and taught them things of the Lord. These Israelites here, they had a functional unbelief, but an intellectual acknowledgement. They had minds full of truth claims, but no love for the truth and embrace of it that would change how they lived. I would caution you, if you're a, a youth or a child, and you can understand what I'm saying, listen for a moment. The faith that your parents have will not make God happy with you. It's as Max Stiles said at the cross conference we were at. He said, quote, every generation has a choice, choice of faithfulness. Make sure that you know God, not just things about God, if you're confused of what that difference is, ask your parents today. Or ask your grandparents. Even if you're a teenager, you can be really deceived because you've learned a lot of things about God if you've grown up in church. That's not the same as knowing God. There's a difference. But on the other hand, if you're a parent or a grandparent, don't carry guilt and weight that you are the reason your children don't know God. 
Sure, you may have responsibility. You may have failed them in small or big ways. You may have contributed to their unbelief, but you haven't caused their unbelief. And you haven't permanently settled their unbelief. You're a steward as a parent, as a grandparent. We want to be good stewards. We want to grieve when we're not. Let that fuel us now to be good stewards, but let's not be carrying around guilt that if our children are not saved, somehow it's all our fault. That's not true. This, this parent generation here did everything right and their children completely ran. You have a stewardship. So why did it go wrong? They didn't know God. That's the core. That's the root of everything. They didn't know God. But practically speaking, it, it manifested. So one way you can look at it is they didn't know God. Another way you could look at it as the reason why it went wrong is because these Canaanite gods were so attractive, so compelling. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. It says, They went after other gods. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons and served their gods. Verse 17 says they didn't listen to their judges, which we'll mention in a moment. They whored after other gods and bowed down to them. So these Canaanite gods attracted them. This is one of the reasons why things went wrong. It seemed like it'd be more fun to participate in this sin. The gods of Baal and Ashtaroth, these were a fertility cult. So if you wanted your crops to grow really well and you wanted rain to fall on the land and you wanted your livestock to breed really well, you wanted your own family to flourish, all that fertility is wrapped up in worshiping these gods. You know how you worship these gods? You practice human fertility, cult prostitution. Sexual pleasure was wrapped up in the worship. How compelling it was for Israel. So they didn't know God. That's why it went wrong, and here's why it went wrong. Because sin seemed so pleasurable. Canaanite gods felt so attractive. It was all idolatry, though. All idolatry. Is there any hope, though? Third question, final question. Is there any hope? Yes, there's hope. The most stunning verse is verse 16 right here. Then the Lord raised up judges. In the midst of all this sin, the Lord raised up judges. God's hand was heavy against them, but the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Unfortunately, though, Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. This is the pattern of the rest of the book. Judges is not so much a cycle as a downward spiral. The people, the pattern is this, the people sin against God, they're plundered, 
Other nations come and do whatever they want to them and their families and their possessions. They get plundered. They have pity and groaning and grief. The Lord then raises up a judge. That judge leads in military might, leads even in civic ways. But then the people are comfortable. They turn back to their sin, and it just keeps spiraling down and down. They get worse as they go. That's the pattern of this book. We're not going to read verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3, but I want to close by summarizing it for you. Is there any hope? That third question, yes, this is the proof. If you have time later today, read through this story of Othniel. He was already mentioned in chapter 1. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served Baal. And this wicked king, Kushan Rishathaim, which his name literally means double evil, twice wicked, is overtaken by God raising up a deliverer who they don't deserve. We don't know much about Othniel other than that he comes from the tribe of Judah. He has a worthy bride. He's victorious. He doesn't fight in his own strength. Verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Chapter 3, verse 10. Spirit of the Lord was on him. He judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gave Kishon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kishon Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The rest of the book is, are these vignettes of judges who rise up like that. It's kind of humorous at times. It's like a whack-a-mole game at a carnival. You never know where the next one's popping up. That's how judges is. Geographically, you never know where they're coming up. There's a lot of humor and strangeness and bizarre things in the book, but with Othniel, nothing is funny. Nothing is strange. In fact, it's just plain excellence. It points us to Christ. Othniel came from Judah. Revelation 5.5 5 tells us Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers. It's no accident that the first judge in this book is in line of the promises that the scepter doesn't depart from Judah. This, this first judge in the book points us to Christ. The way chapter 3 begins shows us that no matter how deep the sin gets, in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, it says eight years the people groaned under their sin. But everything changed when the Lord raised up a judge. Their salvation didn't come from inside of them. It came from outside of them. With the Lord raising up a judge. Hear the Lord's grace this morning. God's grace is deeper than your sin. It goes further. It reaches farther out. It's more weighty than your sin. It can, it can plumb the depths of your sin and rescue you. If you do not know the Lord Christ this morning, you feel like the people of Israel here. You know about God, but you don't know Him. God will punish you for not knowing Him because in not knowing Him, you disobey Him. In disobeying Him, you don't reflect His image to other peoples as you were created to. Because God's good, He's angry and punishes those sins, rightful anger. But he provides a Savior, which is foreshadowed in Othniel, Jesus Christ, who has this plain 
excellence. It's not flashy. It gets the job done in every way. The glory comes later. And who provides rest? Othniel dies, but Jesus never dies. If you look at what Christ has done on the cross and see that as your substitution, that as where God's wrath fell on the Son, and then you see that same Christ rise again from the grave, far greater than a judge, Othniel, who, who stayed dead when he died. And you look to that Savior, Jesus Christ, who rose again and reigns now. If you turn away from your sin, not just cry about it and feel bad about it, but turn away from your sin, which means turn to God, you can be saved from your sin today. Trust in Christ. I look forward to going through the rest of the book of Judges, Lord willing, with you, seeing what God has for us in these different judges. It's stunning to see how deep his grace is. Is there any hope? Yes. The dark backdrop of sin, that autonomy that has flawed vision, all serves to show Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us now to live out this truth and not doubt your grace, not spurn your grace, but receive it. Trust your Savior that you provided. Help us, Lord, to truly repent. Help us to not see sin as a small thing. Help us to truly know you. Help us to listen to our judge and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great salvation that you give. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.